Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day. This is the third part of episode 6, which is all about Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. It's a supplement, or more accurately, a bestiary, or bestiary, however you say it, because we're giving this the title of Monster Manual, talking about creatures, beasts and monstrosities that populate the worlds of D&D. Dungeons and Dragons has brought new listeners to the Grognard Files, which is great. Hello to you all. And some have taken to iTunes to give stars and a review. You remember iTunes? You know that thing where you used to buy things, but you never actually owned them. Well, people people like Woodscanner have given a review like this. I started playing a little earlier than these guys, but it's like listening to me and my mates talking after the game only you know they're northern and no one's been drinking beer and you can't argue with them and when they get something very important wrong thanks for giving the review Woodscanner. it makes us sound like two methodists arguing in a pub over nothing in this part of the podcast it includes at daily dwarf on twitter picking fiends that first appeared in the pages of White Dwarf during its August period in the early to mid-80s. He's written a great piece that I'll read in my usual nasally tone, and he almost got me to include the pluck, but he realised that it was actually a race from Traveller that appeared in issue 47. So... I had a lucky escape there. And uh, Blythe also joins me in the role-playing room of rambling to open the box on the 5th edition D&D that we've been playing in the past few weeks. Later on, we're also together to face off each other with our wandering monster tables behind the Games Master screen. I should say that I love monsters. Back in the day when... Simon eventually got the other books after we had been struggling for a while with just the Dungeon Master's Guide. Blythe would have his nose in the player's handbook studying the spells and I would be endlessly flicking through the monster manual. I never put my nose in it though because it smelled really bad like sour milk. Now, now I have to say that in my opinion, I'm a better games master than a player, so I instinctively was drawn to the descriptions and special features, because I think directing monsters is part of the thrill and wonder of playing role-playing games. And I'll talk a bit later in the podcast about how there is relatively little discussion in podcasts about monsters, and I'd like to see more. And when it comes to monsters, I really believe that they shouldn't be set dressing. They should be directed like Spielberg directs monsters. Uh, 
I'm paraphrasing Hitchcock here, but there's no thrill in encountering a monster, just the anticipation of it. But something went a bit awry uh, after we awoke from our deep freeze and was slightly thawed out in the noughties and we were playing D&D quite intensely. I came, I became a bit insane and a bit of a, a, a flavour of that comes out later in the podcast. But we'll get on to that later. I'm wandering down passages of thought and rambling like a, a lost beholder. So let's get going. Uh, ramblers, let's get rambling. Open box. We've opened the box several times in this episode to reveal our chequered past with Dungeons and Dragons. I've got Blythe with me. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. We've got together for one last job. Open box is our memories and the first encounters of a game, how we played, and general thoughts and first impressions seen through rose-tinted glasses. Uh, for this one, Blythe, I want you to cast your mind right back to about 12 weeks ago. That far back? Yeah, can you do that? No, I can remember 12 years ago, but, but 12 weeks is... It's going to be a struggle. Yeah, at our age, that's what happens, isn't it? You know. Yeah, 12 weeks is a bit of a blind spot, isn't mm. it? <laughs> and what, what we did 12 weeks ago is we started to play online, didn't we? We were joined by Daily Dwarf and uh, Joe from our travel adventure game. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we started playing online and started to open the box. And it is a box because I managed to get the starter set from Waterstones, which is a, a book chain yeah. uh, in the UK. And I thought, I'll, I'll give it a go. Let's uh, let's see what it's like. Mm. And it is a starter set. It's not it's not the basic set. You can download the basic rules from the Wizard of Course. Which is what I did. I, I downloaded yeah. the basic rules, you know, yeah. which are free. Yeah. Like drug dealers, really, aren't they? Yeah, giving you a free one to get you hooked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what they what what they do with the start to say is that you get an adventure, and they give you the rules to play the adventures. Minds of uh, Fandelva, and this appeared in two thousand and fourteen, and Wizard of course had extensively playtested what was called D and D Next, mm. and this was the first appearance of what is known as Fifth Edition now, isn't it? You have to say that you can feel the playtesting. Now, we have to say, don't we, that, of course, we missed uh, three and four. Yes, we did. We don't really have any real knowledge of that. I think the only experience I've had of that is limited because it involves flicking through it in a bookshop. I don't know if it was third edition or fourth edition D&D. I can remember flicking through it, might have been player's handbook, uh, and feeling quite sort of kind of recoiled at the thought of it because it looked incredibly dense and complex and I thought and I think we had a discussion afterwards where I said to you uh, do you know what I think I'm too old to learn a new game I think that's yes, it I'm, that's I'm, right, I'm, yeah, I'm too old because I, look, I looked at it and just thought oh, and I might be wrong maybe it's not particularly complicated I mean it's still D&D isn't it but um, just the it seemed a bit dense and a bit different and a bit oh, but, you know, a bit too much where you think oh no I'm just going to stick to old stuff now, that's it. You know. I think that's part of the joy of this um, starter set because clearly this is pitched at new players, yeah. getting new yeah, players yeah. in there. Yeah. But also 
old players, isn't it? So mm. you you know you'll get the forty uh, something guys who going into Waterstones, mm. see that on the show. Oh, I'll give it a try. Yeah, you know, for yeah. fifteen quid, I paid a lot less than that actually. Um, and the um, and the adventure in those um, very atmospheric. But the th- the thing that strikes you first of all is that thing. It's simple, isn't it? It it, it somehow kind of cut through some of those complexities in detail it does it does what i think's impressive about the um about the fifth edition because let's face it the drug dealer tactic worked didn't it and we have all bought the yeah. handbook and dungeon master's guide and monster manual <laughs> so it, it did yeah. work the free well, well done wizards of the coast well i think i i think because i i, I was uh, games master in the game i think i deserve some kind of commission i think you should yeah because by my have rec- a lot of sales haven't they yeah. you've bought it i've bought it um yeah, everybody's bought it. Ed's bought it. Joel's yeah. bought it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we all bought it's it. It's a so wonderful that's, marketing technique. Yeah. Let's say games designers everywhere give away your yeah. ba- a basic version of the game for free, and people are going. If it's good, people are going to buy the rest but, of it. By my reckoning, that's three hundred and sixty quid. <laughs> yeah. I, I must produce some of that. I think you must produce some of that back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but you're right. We bought that and. It is a very, very well put together rule book. There is only one, one glitch, and Daily Dwarf will back me up on this. Having all the spells in some straightforward alphabetical order is yeah. annoying. Yeah, yeah. If you're listening, Wizards of the Coast, um, <laughs> that is annoying. It should be broken down into levels and then alphabetically, because there's yeah. no point looking through it alphabetically and finding power word kill under P when you're first level. This is irrelevant, <laughs> you can't have it. Um, but it is a very well written rule book, I think. It's very engaging as a rule book, isn't it? Yeah. You know, player's handbook, very engaging. Um, quite simple, straightforward. Um, there's a lot of colour. It re- retains a lot of the original game, but cuts out a lot of the nonsense, a lot of the kind of inconsistent rules uh, and weird tables and yeah. some of the stupid stuff that always got on our nerves. So it's, it's a very well-written rule book and very easy to kind of get to grips with. You yeah. Know? Well, I think that's what I liked about the um, starter set rules is that, you know, the... It's quite a flimsy um, booklet that you get with it, and it just gives you enough to play mm. Minds of Fandelva, and it takes you from first to fifth level. Yeah, um, you yeah. get pre-generated characters, so none of the character creation stuffs in there. Yeah. it just gives you what you need to play yeah. the game, and that, that's quite good that you get the pre-generated ones because all the kind of uh, little feats and extra things that they can do are all there ready for yeah. you and explains them so you can get to grips with it it's interesting isn't it that we, we've talked about some new games through these podcasts you know we've talked about RuneQuest 6 we've talked about you know other games you know we, we recently played Knights Black Agents um, and there's a lot of games out there and I think we've said before um, sometimes I, I defy people who've never played a role playing game to play these games Yes. You know, yeah. I, I defy someone who's never experienced a role-playing game to play RuneQuest Six because yeah. it is a very dense game. It's, it's brilliant if you're experienced, but it's very dense um, and, and hard to get to grips with. And if you've no experience of a role-playing game, it would be impenetrable. But Fifth Edition D and D, they do a brilliant job of you know actually if you've never played a role-playing game, I, I think you could read that and get to grips with it. Yeah. You know. And yeah. that's a that's a good thing, isn't it? It is you know, a good thing. You yeah. know, as we get older and or die off, where are the next role playing generation coming from? As <laughs> all our hit points drain away through old age. Yeah, <laughs> and we don't believe in resurrections. So. We don't believe in resurrections, so that we can't come back. You know. And I think you said um, 
early on when uh, we, we started this off, um, we mentioned uh, briefly D and D Fifth Edition, and you said this is a game that you always wanted it to be. Yes, it is. It, it does feel like, as as we've discussed through these D and D podcasts, I when we played back in the day, I was always the one who sort of was more sympathetic to D and D, despite all its problems. Um, and Fifth Edition is it is very much like the like what I imagined and wanted D and D to be. 30 years ago. Yeah. But D&D sort of wasn't because it was a bit crunchy and a bit clumsy and a bit weird in places. Um, but it does, you know, it's a bit like um, remarrying your ex-partner and finding mm. out, you know, that they're okay really after all. <laughs> and they've changed. <laughs> well, I, I'm going I, to suggest that actually it's probably a perfect game for our group because mm. it's got uh, elements in it that um, suit our style. So, First off, it's nostalgic, you know, because it, yeah, yeah. It, even though it's got innovations, it's still recognisable as D&D. It is still recognisable, yeah. So if you if you wanted to play a paladin, for example, it is like a paladin from first edition. If you want to play a magic user, the, the same spells are in there. There's yeah. the same sense of what the game used to be. Although it's been pointed out, Enlarge has been tampered with. It's it? been tampered with, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. You have to have a saving throw. If it, yeah. Um, so it's nostalgic. It feels like D and D. It feels like you're in a D and D game. Um, however, it's not as adversarial as no. old D and D. So you know the theme of us. This episode has been about the power game mm. element. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we've played Minds of Fandalven. We've played another game with the old scrolls in Southport. Yes. Um, more of which in the next part of uh, this podcast. But um, we, we played we played it with different players, and it feels like it engenders more cooperative play yes. than mm. we've been used to in the past. Um, I don't know what that's down to. Well, it's yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? I, I think part of it, though, I, I think part of it is that if you read the player's handbook, the fifth edition player's handbook. It has a few role, uh, little bits in there about motivations of characters, backgrounds of characters, and the descriptions of the character classes are less about... Whilst it does include what they can do, yes. how many hit points they get, and what advantages and disadvantages. So it obviously includes the crunchy game side of it. But it also gives a kind of description of... Um, what that character class is about, yeah. what the motivations are. A good example, brilliant example is, and I, and I really like this character class, is the warlock. Yeah. So there's three types of wizards, not just one in fifth edition. There's sorcerers, there's, there's wizards, and there's warlocks. And a warlock gets their magic from bargaining with some kind of terrible supreme demon or force so it gives some examples like you know kind of like, like a pact with the devil almost so you get your magic from a pact with the devil but that that's an interesting development isn't it for mm-hmm. D&D because what it's really saying is this character's power if you like so you can be a power gamer be a warlock but that power's kind of tempered a little and yeah. there's, a, there's a negotiation there and there's something behind it that's a little bit more than a load of numbers on a character sheet. Yeah. I think the thing with D&D First Edition, you always got this thing that it was just 
um, a load of numbers on a character sheet and it was about cranking up the hit points and cranking up the to hit rolls and the damage bonuses and all that. And whilst there is, there is, that's still there yeah. in 5th edition, but there's things that sit behind that and I think that, that Warlock's a great example. Yeah. Yes, you're a powerful wizard, but you're getting that power from some strange evil, not necessarily evil, it gives a couple of the evil examples, one that's not evil, but you're getting it from some kind of deity or something else, some yeah, yeah. supernatural force. And that's interesting. That yeah. offsets, I think, that power gamer dimension. Yeah, it, it does. So, so there's that, there's that, isn't it? And you really brought me on to my third thing that I think is, um, is good about it, and that's about character and about the character classes mm. and the amount of effort they've put into that player's handbook is... More or less taken up in generating your character, yeah, yeah, and it's pulling on those things, pulling on those um, strings that we like in a game. Yeah. So building up a character based on your motivations, your passions, yeah. what you you know what you drives you, yeah. why you're doing this, mm-hmm. um, very very nicely done, and a lot of like contextual stuff to really give you an idea of a race or yeah. a, a character class. I think that's really well done. And I think as well what it does to offset power gaming is from a from a practical sort of rules point of view, it your characters are quite good. Yeah. You know, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't give you you don't end up with a first level character who's gonna die if uh, you know he has a bad sneezing fit or something like that. Whereas in first edition there was always that sense of, you know, you got three hit points and you know, first level thief with three hit points, and God, you know, you stub your toe. You're dead. Well, they well they've kind of achieved balance because you know I've always had this view that D and D has been compromised by its need to have balance, but they've achieved balance. But they've achieved balance not by penalising character classes, yes, but actually exactly. enhancing yeah. them and yeah. bringing them to a level, yeah, um, where it's tol- yeah. you know you, you can the balance. The balance is more about what you're good at than what you're not good at exactly that, yeah. that's very true i think and it's like some of the statistics you know the stat benefits of, of strength dexterity and what have you they're not set at that ridiculously high level so i know in a previous podcast we talked about you know the fighter who always felt you had to have um strength 18 because there was no point uh, but but in this you can be a fighter with a strength of 13 and still be fairly tough and be good at being a fighter so it, that min-maxing thing's kind of gone out the window as well. It doesn't matter as much if you've got a lowish stat or a high stat. It doesn't give you a massive benefit over and above anything else. Um, so I think that's uh, an interesting aspect of it. And I think as well the character classes are just they're just more interesting. I mean, you have said before, I always like to play it. In first edition D&D, I always like to play the magic user. I'm not really interested in, I'm not interested in being a cleric. For obvious reasons, I mean, I'm not being interested. I've never been interested in being a fighter because I think a fighter is a bit boring. You just hit things till they till they stop moving, or they or you stop moving. Either way, you know, it's mm. boring. And I think in fifth edition, um, I read those character classes and thought, actually, do you know what? I wouldn't mind playing a fighter because they're quite interesting. Mm. They have different abilities and different things they can do. And you think, you know, when we've been playing uh, online, Joe's character, who's a fighter, who's just a regular fighter. I actually think well, he's quite a good character class, isn't he? He's got some feats and special abilities that make him seem like a bit of a tough guy with a sword. Yeah. Who's a, who's a bit better than a regular person with a sword? Yeah. And that's that's a really good thing, I think. You know, some of those uh, feats and special uh, features are really good, aren't they? I mean, um, we really really like um, 
Eddie's character is uh, Roscoe Tossbottle, which is going to be <laughs> yes. one of the best names. He's uh, <laughs> a halfling uh, rogue, mm. and um, because of his uh, racial characteristic, he's naturally lucky. Mm. So that means yeah. that if he rolls a one, he can roll again. Yeah. Um, yeah. And rolling two ones in a row is impossible. Turns out oh, it isn't. Turns out it isn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The thing is, uh, Roscoe Tossbottle. Uh, halfling thief is a very lucky character. Sadly, Eddie isn't. <laughs> That's one of the dilemmas of role playing, isn't it? With his yeah. dice roll, he hasn't been that lucky. That's one no. of the problems. But it's those little features and ele- character elements, as well as the background and personality yeah. bits, yeah. that make it really interesting. I think. I think. I think another thing it does. And this will this will shock the listening public in the podcast right. sphere, yeah. podcast verse, whatever whatever it is out there. It actually makes clerics. Or care. What's yeah. interesting, I'll say, or care. I actually think. Well, I think that comes down to because I, I remember when we first started playing, um, I mean, this might reflect our age, um, <laughs> but we spent, you know, as grognards, we started talking about having a rest, didn't we? And the rules for having a rest. Yes. Yeah. And we spent a good 20 minutes about how good the having a rest Yeah, having a rest rule is great in 5th edition, yeah. And I think that's what makes the cleric interesting, isn't it? Because... It does because the, the under the with fifth edition, um, well, in, in first edition, you know, once you lost hit points, it was very hard to get back through healing. Natural healing was quite a slow process, so you always needed healing potions, and you needed a cleric who had cure light wounds and cure serious wounds and that kind of thing. Uh, and that's really what made clerics boring because the cleric always had to st- stock up on healing spells, and essentially it was just some kind of glorified St John's Ambulance after the fighting was over. And that's what made him boring. But in 5th edition, you're right, you get hit points back far quicker by resting, uh, you know, for an hour. You can get mm. some hit points back. Uh, a night's sleep, you can get hit points back. And that means that the cleric doesn't have to worry about having healing spells or as many healing spells and can actually have some of the more interesting spells. Yeah. So that that's a good thing. You know, we've played... And I think the Daily Dwarf is the cleric. Um, he got the short straw. Um, <laughs> Play, playing a dwarf. Playing a dwarven cleric, yeah. yeah. But I think he's only used, in two sessions, he's only used one healing spell, hasn't he? Yes. Uh, on someone who got uh, hit with a very nasty weapon. And, and, need, and he needed it because he was at death's door. The rest of us haven't needed healing spells. And I think that's good. It makes clerics more interesting. Yeah. Know? Who'd have thought it? Yeah, that's a great. That's, perhaps that's his greatest achievement from my point of view. It's made. I'm not saying I want to play one. I won't go that far, but they are slightly more interested. We could also say, who'd have thought it? You know, when we um, started doing these podcasts and we started playing, who'd have thought it would say that actually, D and D could be our game. Could be the future. Could be the game that we've been waiting for. And we yeah, and it, it's an interesting. It's an interesting point, that isn't it? Because it makes you wonder, doesn't it, about games? That's a big philosophical point here. I <laughs> got it. it is just <laughs> deep, don't need to lie deep, down. You might need to lie down after this. But it does make you wonder, doesn't it, about the games you play, the role-playing games you play, and the life you lead. You know. So when we were younger, we had all the time in the world, and we played a lot of RuneQuest, and it was okay that because we could invent our own scenarios. And the fact that a RuneQuest NPC is quite difficult to generate, you know, the monsters are difficult to generate because you have all the hit locations, you have all the percentage chances, all that kind of stuff. Um, 
that was all right. Now we're older, we've got families and jobs and responsibilities. Um, we like to capitalise on time for role playing, for actually playing the game. We have less time to kind of prepare stuff, don't yeah, we? Yeah. So the games that we've started to enjoy are, you know, we've played Numenera. That that's quite easy to run. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's quite easy yeah. to make stuff up on the hoof. You know, Knights Black Agents. We've played that. That although that's a very, well, we'll talk about that at some point in a podcast. But again, it has that kind of improvisationary feel to it, doesn't it? Yeah. And fifth edition D and D is the same thing. It, it's easy to, yeah. easy to prepare for, and kind of quick to play and quick to kind of get into the action and move the plot along. You know. Yeah. So maybe it's it's less about the games themselves and more about absolutely our, yeah. your yeah. lifestyle. You know, maybe one day when we're old men. In old people's home with all the time in the world, we'll revert back to RuneQuest, you know. Yeah. <laughs> An aftermath. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, quite, yeah. Okay, well, uh, we're going to come back, Blythe, and I hope you've got your wandering monster table ready because we're going to talk monsters. But for now, see you later. See ya. The White Dwarf. Dungeons and Dragons. The Fiend Factory. Monsters, you want them? Well, White Dwarf had them in buckets. From the very beginning of D&D, there was an insatiable appetite for monsters. I think it's easy to see why, if you consider the wargaming roots of RPGs. It was the weird and wonderful fantastical beasts in Gary Gygax's fantasy supplement for Chainmail that made it so distinctive and set it apart from the other commercial wargame rules available. Dragons, orcs, trolls, giants, the medieval purists were aghast, but the young Turks of the gaming scene were eager for more, and as D&D emerged in its own right, the monsters remained a defining feature of the game. Drawing from myth, legend and fiction, monsters were a key element in the worlds and adventures created by those early dungeon masters, allowing those stories and legends to become more vividly alive at the tabletop. But it seemed however many monsters were available for the game, there was always a desire for more. Those pesky players kept reading the rule books and finding the monsters' strengths and weaknesses. TSR's answer? Well, more supplements. The very first D&D supplements Greyhawk, Blackmoor, Eldritch Wizardry all included new creatures that DMs could use to confuse and test their players. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the first AD&D rulebook published was the Monster Manual. Basically, we all just love monsters. And from its earliest issues, White Dwarf wasn't immune from this monster mania. It seems alliteration is obligatory in D&D Monsterland, as we'll see. It all started way back in issue 4 with Monsters Mild and Malign, edited by the scourge of necromancers everywhere, Mr Don Turnbull. This issue and the next just featured creatures already published in other magazines, notably from The Dungeoneer and Alarms and Excursions. Readers' contributions were encouraged for future issues. I should say that none of the many that I sent were ever published, but I'll magnanimously carry on anyway. I'm over it. Really. 
And so, in issue six, Monsters Mild and Malign became The Fiend Factory. A much better title. After all, who wants mild monsters? Each entry followed the now well-established format for D&D Monster Write-Up. A stat block, a description, an accompanying illustration. More on these in a bit. During his time as editor of the column, Don Turnbull also added his own comments on each monster. These were usually quite instructive, with thoughts on how the dungeon master could best use the creature in the game. And, of course, Don Turnbull being Don Turnbull, he also gave the monster mark for each entry in the Fiend Factory, mainly because he was the only person in Britain who knew how to calculate the value. The Fiend Factory quickly went from strength to strength in the early years of White Dwarf, publishing details in a string of exciting and innovative monsters for D&D. So much so, in fact, that when TSR decided to publish their second monster companion for AD&D, many of them came from contribution to White Dwarf's Fiend Factory. Thus was born the Fiend Folio, featuring such great monsters as the Necrophidius, Needleman, Nilbog, Vault and many others, and all first featured in White Dwarf. Indeed, two monsters have made it all the way to the current 5th edition monster manual. The Githyanki by Charles Stross, yes, that Charles Stross, author of the Laundry Files, and the Hook Horror from the Godfather himself, Ian Livingstone. Albi Foray took over the editing duties of Fiend Factory in issue 18, and the great monsters just kept on coming. He introduced the idea in some columns of linking the creatures together with a themed mini-scenario, a nice innovation that provided extra depth and context to the monsters. And so it continued. But how many monsters is too many monsters? At what point does the law of diminishing returns kick in? Maybe it's an argument for a different time, but despite the overall high standard of entries in the Fiend Factory, by the early 60s, it did appear to be running out of steam. Indeed, in issue 61, it was announced that monsters would be accepted for any RPG system. Sacrilege. Apparently, this was due to demand. I want names. As it turned out, there was only one non-D&D Fiend Factory column, 69, which featured villains for the Golden Heroes RPG. Maybe that was the final straw, as only two more Fiend Factory columns appeared, with the last one in issue 73. Ah, but what a glorious run it was. One of the things that made the Fiend Factory such a strong column over the years in White Dwarf was the quality of the artwork that accompanied each entry. They perfectly complemented the imaginative descriptions from the readers and allowed the DMs to easily conjure up in their mind's eye how an encounter with the players would look. Many wonderful artists provided illustrations for the Fiend Factory. Ian McCaig, Kevin Bulmer, John Mould... Alan Hunter, John Blanche, all beautifully illustrated the monstrous hordes in their weird and wonderful variety. But for my money, the first among equals was definitely Russ Nicholson. His instantly recognisable style perfectly suited the depiction of monsters. 
Every creature from his pen was imbued with threat and menace. Just look at his illustration of the Githyanki, also used in the Fiend folio. The proud, cruel and malevolent nature of the race are all captured in that picture. I don't know if Russ Nicholson got the Fiend folio gig on the back of the quality of his illustrations in White Dwarf, but it wouldn't surprise me. While he went on to bigger fame as the illustrator of many classic fighting fantasy game books, for me, he'll always be the quintessential Fiend Factory artist. So, anyway, in true Top of the Pop style, I thought I'd pick my top five monsters from White Dwarf. I made the arbitrary decision that I'd ignore those that featured in the Fiend folio, since they're likely well known already. On with the top five. Uh, there's actually six. <clears throat> I'm, I'm sorry I couldn't narrow it down any further. Number six. The Russian Doll Monster. The early Fiend Factory columns featured a number of joke monsters, based around a silly idea that might have made you smile, but also made you wonder how to use them in a game such as the Dadi, a mutated mummy, Walking just on the right side of absurdity, though, was the Russian Doll Monster, by Mike Ferguson in issue 15. The party steel themselves to attack a stone giant. Nervous glances pass between the fighters. The magic user curses the fact that he's just used up his last reduced spell, just as they start to do some damage, the skin of the stone giant crumples away and a hill giant emerges from within. More damage and the hill giant collapses as an ogre emerges. On the process goes down through a succession of humanoids until the party are left facing a kobold. Feeling confident now, they attack the kobold with ease. As it dies... A leprechaun shoots out of the remains, steals the nearest valuable item and legs it. It's a funny concept and well realised and has a real impact for the first time the players encounter one. Crucially though, I think this novelty monster you can use more than once, even when the players know it's coming. It's still a heck of a job catching that damn leprechaun. Number 5. Winter Kobolds the Fiend Factory in issue 26 was subtitled Dire Tribes and featured monsters that came mob-handed. All the entries are great, but for me the pick of the bunch are the Winter Kobolds by Jonathan Hardwick. Proof that you can make an effective and challenging new monster just by putting a spin on an existing one. Winter Kobolds are a more powerful version of their normal cousins. Toughened by their harsh life in the cold northern wastes, insert your own Bolton joke here, they described as desperate raiders attacking homesteads in the dead of night, intent on pillage and slaughter. Jonathan Hardwick put some thought into building a narrative around his monsters, making them an excellent adversary in a campaign based in wintry lands. Another reason the Winter Kobolds appealed to me so much is the superlative illustration by Ian McCaig, that accompanies the entry. Drawn side on, the winter kobolds emerge from a snowy tree line. Wrapped in studded leather and furs, they stir into the middle distance, bristling with menace. I don't know what they're looking at, but I don't fancy its chances.
Number four, the Sand Sniper. My favourite monster from the later Fiend Factory columns is undoubtedly the Sand Sniper by Kevin Reedman from issue 64. Whenever my plays are anywhere sandy, deserts, dunes, heck, even sandy soil, they learn to be wary of Sand Snipers. This hidden octopoid nightmare is a great monster for creating drama. As the players plod along on a nondescript journey, there's an instant injection of adrenaline as a tentacle suddenly erupts from the sand and tries to drag a player down below into the waiting, slathering moor. Panic often ensues. Basically, it's tremors with tentacles. And who doesn't love tentacles? It's also a monster with a well-developed sense of self-preservation. When threatened, it doesn't hang around to be sword fodder, but it burrows back down out of sight, biding its time to strike again. A thoroughly nasty beast. Number three, the Lokuli. In issue 36 of White Dwarf, the Fiend Factory was given over to just one monster, the Lokuli. With the luxury of a whole two pages to himself, Eric Hall details an intelligent reptilian race rooted deep underground. Large and well-armoured, they're nevertheless agile in their subterranean environment due to their six-limbed nature. PCs take on the Lakuli at their peril. Claws, bite, a fearful club tail, weapons, and all can be used in combat. Older individuals also have spells and psionic abilities available to them. Tolerant of many races with whom they will sometimes trade, they have a deep-seated hatred for dwarves and gnomes who they will attack without mercy. What sets this Fiend Factory entry apart for me is the well-developed community and social structure that Eric Hall describes. This really provides a great background and context for the Lakuli, giving the dungeon master a number of great narrative hooks to allow them to be introduced into a campaign. I hope D&D diehards won't be offended when I say that, with its rich group structures and hierarchies, its complex and believable motivations, the Lakuli seem more like a RuneQuest monster to me. And I must also mention John Blanche's illustration. A single Lukuli waits, tail raised threateningly, holding a scimitar with the notches on the weapon, indicating past battles, past victories. Simply spectacular. Number two. Fairy denizens. OK, so this is a bit of a cheat. My second place choice is the whole Fiend Factory column. In issue 38, Alan E. Paul detailed a number of inhabitants of the land of Fairy. Drawing on the Celtic myths of Wales, Scotland, Cornwall and Ireland, he presents a group of creatures that work much better as a single whole rather than individually. The Fairy Denizens are a capricious bunch at times magical and enchanted, curious about the ways of mortals, and at other times devious objects of pure terror, a threat to your very soul. They are remote and primal, 
quite distinct from the real world. They bring to mind the dank, misty marshlands of ancient Britain and the chilling terrors of Arthur Machen's The White People. Inspired by Alan E. Paul's article in the previous issue about adventuring in the land of fairy, I use the setting a number of times with my players. The denizens are a key part to creating the distinctive atmosphere where mystery and myth combine to create a place out of time where magic can enchant and delight, but danger constantly lurks. And Dungeon Masters, if you have a player who always plays a bard, make sure you introduce them to Li Nan Sidi, also known as the Fey Sturge, whose beautiful but deadly vampiric entities can hide in mirrors, waiting to ensnare their favourite prey. Musicians. And number one is... In White Dwarf issue 16, one of my favourite RPG writers, combined with one of my favourite artists, to bring to the tabletop a creature from the pages of one of my favourite authors. How could my number one monster be anything other than the Irviles? Lou Pulsifer expertly translates these ebony, sightless, alien creatures from the Thomas Covenant stories of Stephen Donaldson into D&D. They're not born, but they're made, spawned in vats. Russ Nicholson's marvellous illustration depicts a bizarre, bestial creature, tensed for action. I think Lou Pulsifer must have written this article after the publication of the first trilogy. Now, those of you who've read the more recent stories, what do you mean you haven't read all ten books? We'll know that the Irvile's motivations become more complex and ambiguous over time, but here they are pure evil. Individually not very dangerous, the power of the Irviles comes from when they form. The Wedge, channeling arcane magic through the lore master at the apex. As described by Donaldson, the lore master's weapons spat acrid theology and ruin as the creatures rushed forward. In game terms, the lore master draws power from the wedge to increase their attacks and improve their armor class. They can produce strong acid from their staff and establish a force field to protect the whole wedge. It all adds up to a highly distinctive, evocative creature to add to your game. As Lewis Pulsifer said recently on Twitter, One of my favourites, a small castle surrounded by assaulting Irviles, terrifying for defenders. Hellfire, what a monster! So, there you have it. Some of my favourite fiends from the pages of White Dwarf. With so many greats to choose from, though, I'm sure you'll have your own favourites. Let us know yours via the Armchair Adventures blog page at thegrognardfiles.com. Monster mark calculation is not required. Games Master Screen! Once again, we've left our normal room of role-playing rambling 
and we've come down into the darkest depths of Dirk Towers to find my trapped menagerie. A menagerie of monsters. <laughs> I like doing that evil laugh. <laughs> your best, that's your evil laugh. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'm not particularly evil. No. Well, we'll find out in a minute, won't we? <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is a part of the podcast called the Games Master Screen. So, without further ado, I'm going to uh, install the screen between myself and Blythe. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. And we're going to use a random table. Because this episode is all about the monster manual, we have two tables of wandering monsters, random encounter tables. Have you got enough on there? I think there's enough, yeah. yeah. Did you fill it okay? Yeah, well, I struggled a little bit. How can I put it? I think the monsters are all good in certain contexts. So there's certain monsters that work very well when you pit them against particular character classes or particular parties or particular players with a certain attitude so they all have the unique sort of special attacks and special ways of dealing with things yeah yeah and i think D sometimes struggles for the the great all-round monster because they all fit into a certain context and are good in a certain way if, yeah. if that if that makes sense yeah no, you know yeah. so it's difficult to pick a good good all-rounders well i had no trouble filling mine <laughs> no. because you know last time you said um uh, spells are where D&D comes into its own mm. and for me it's the monsters where D&D comes into its own and you know my, my reflections over the last uh, few years since we've got back into the hobby I've listened to lots of podcasts and there is a silence over monsters it's, mm. lower, it's a subject that nobody wants to deal with if you want to listen to podcasts about you know, plot points and the story development, there's laws out there. If you want to deal with idiot holes at the table and um, you know, people who hog the snacks, you can find loads of podcasts about that. But you can't find podcasts about monsters. Mm. I, yeah, that's a good point, that, isn't it? I, yeah. I wonder why that is. Well, the reason I, I started in the hobby and I started this episode... Uh, to do with the golden voyage of Sinbad. Mm. As a kid, I loved seeing monsters larger than life on the screen. Yes. And that's the reason why I start, started doing it, I started role-playing. Not because I, you know, I could decide my own story. I wanted to encounter monsters and hit them with a sword. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. And I think, I wonder if that's why people don't talk about monsters. Um in as much detail because is it is it a kind of a bit of a dirty word like the fact that we like you know yeah. monsters we like hitting things with swords until they're dead it's a bit is it a bit is it perceived as a bit crude is it the crude end of the game so if you've got your player characters with their fleshed out backgrounds and interactions with other player characters and uh, storylines and you've got your comp, you know your intricate scenario with all the different bits and pieces and then you encounter some goblin bandits yeah. and you have a good old scrap with the goblin bandits and you kill them all is it sort of feel a bit incidental to the overarching plot or is it or is it just that we quite enjoy that we quite enjoy fighting goblin bandits but we don't really want to talk about it because yeah. it's like the crude end of the game so it's yeah. a little bit when when you tell someone who doesn't play uh, role-playing games um often i find one of the reactions of people who know nothing about it or they have a, they have a rudimentary understanding of it so if you play oh you play dungeons and dragons do you 
And you say, yeah. They go, oh, oh, is that like killing dragons and monsters in a dungeon? That, that's their perception of it. And I think that's why, perhaps... No, no, it's not about that at all. It's not about that at all. It's about story and plot. It is about that. It is about that. It is about, that. <laughs> it's about killing things, essentially. And, and there is that, I think there is that sense in which it perhaps feels a bit crude. Yeah. I don't know. I, th- I think that's part of it. I think that's part of it, certainly. But I also think it's a case of familiarity uh, breeds contempt, mm. you know, because it is such a, an important part of um, the game that... Around the table, everybody's like, and, and this is where the monster manual comes in because it's kind of ingrained, and you know, you saying that certain things fit certain things, and uh, yeah. they have like a mathematical equation to deal with certain situations. Yes. Yeah, that it kind of it loses some of its mm. essential magic. Yeah, um, possibly. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I mean, we're saying at this point, we, we've read we've read fifth edition. I think yeah. fifth edition monster manual. Is is a world away from first edition. Oh, it's, yeah. it's it's fantastic menagerie. It's much better, much better oh, set yeah. of monsters. I think you're right. In first edition D and D. It is. It does feel like that kind of mathematical thing of, you know, if you've got characters like this, you can throw this at them. If yeah. you've got a character like that, you can throw this at them. You're absolutely right. I think of the three books that have come out for the fifth edition. I could spend hours mm, reading yeah, the Monster yeah. Manual. I have spent hours. Yes, we have. We both have. Yeah. It's. Uh, <laughs> I find. I find it very inspiring. It's yeah. got lots of little details yeah. in there about the story. And when you think of many of these monsters started as little plastic figures, didn't they? So like the Boule. Yeah, I was, believe so. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Gary Gygax had a collection of uh, from the pound shop the little um, made in Taiwan figures mm. that's where the mm. rust monster comes from doesn't it With yes its, yeah yeah a little plastic the, weird little plastic figure the owl bear and, uh, yeah. and the boule of course mm. and you look at the boule um, in the first edition the it, it, drawing of it and it looks ridiculous doesn't yeah. it yeah even though it ate at your dwarven pony yeah that wasn't allowed to have <laughs> But that idea of it being a land shark and everything, you know, mm. it should be fearsome. And the fifth edition does make it fearsome. Yes, it, it does. Yeah, the, the illustration's better, and and some of the back, I think some of the background too. So, so, for example, some of the more pedestrian monsters in fifth edition are f- far more exciting in fifth edition. So orcs and zombies, for example, which are kind of your stock in trade monsters, have some kind of special abilities yeah. that make them slightly more fearsome. You know, it's like I think the zombies. Uh, you know they they don't necessarily die when they die die again when they get to zero hit points they get certain saving throws because they're already dead you know and that kind of thing that make them a little bit more exciting because I think Monster Manual first edition Monster Manual does have um, quite a few run of the mill bog standard you know goblins hobgoblins gnolls lizard men they're all the same really aren't they they don't really have much to them apart from you know the they're just a different thing, but a hobgoblin, you know, gets a little bit more and it's hit dice and an orc. And you, but essentially, same kind of monsters. Fifth edition makes them much more, makes them more well-rounded. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's like the goblins that we encountered when we played, first played fifth yeah. edition could sort of hide as an extra action. So they were kind of darting in and out of the woods, the forest, and you couldn't see them. And that made them difficult and, yeah. and a bit more fearsome, even though yeah. they're kind of puny. You know, one minute they've... they've shot an arrow at you when it's your turn they've disappeared into the forest you yeah. know and that's kind of exciting and makes them more exciting yeah absolutely but the third thing i blame uh, peter jackson and cgi yes <laughs> Be- 
because <laughs> when Peter Jackson had the toolkit to create mm. um, monsters, you know, even though he had, a, you know, he looked back to uh, Ray Harryhausen, you only have to look at something like King Kong to realise that, you know, the, the greatest, the greatest monster in cinema history, King Kong, diminished to a video game. CGI, it, you know, it, it, it doesn't have any weight. It doesn't have any sense of being gigantic. That, that, that's diminished. Yeah, it. that's true. That, yeah, I think you've hit on something there because you sit there and you think, well, it's a computer. How do they do that? Oh, it's a computer. Yeah. And it, and it loses something a little bit. Whereas when it was the Ray Harryhausen stuff, how do they do that? Oh, yeah. it's a little model and you move it bit by bit and then it looks like a, you know, a real thing. And it, there's something... I don't know, in, in the back of your when, mind, there's something sort of more... It does, you say, you're right, it has more weight, it has a little yeah. bit more weight. Whereas CGI stuff, if you say it was just a computer, well, it's just, just a computer, isn't it? You can do anything yeah. with a computer, almost, anything visually. And therefore, as you say, it feels more like a video game. Or, or maybe just, just take them for granted. Yeah. Maybe that's, that's the thing. CGI, we take monsters for granted because Ray Harryhausen's... Skeletons at the end of Jason and the Argonauts, right? Yeah. That's a great scene, and they're the little, obviously, the little models and made to look big and they move stop motion and all that. If that was redone now, I will bet you anything you like, it would be a horde of skeletons, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be an absolute. Well, they, do it. they do it now. It would they? be an army of skeletons, and the problem with that, I think you're right, it takes something away from it. So you just you sit there and you know, get me blase. Oh, there's a thousand skeletons, is there? How do they do that? Oh, it's a computer. Yeah. yeah. Whereas, whereas I, I think the I go back stop to, motion stuff. I, I go back to uh, King Kong. You know, when when uh, Willis O'Brien originally did that, the the ape, even in the, those crude effects, the ape had mm. significance and weight. Mm. Peter Jackson has it cartwheeling over a Tyrannosaurus yes. Rex. Yeah, you know? yeah. So um, we're all. I think you're right. We, we, culturally, if you're into those kind of films, if you're into those kind of films and that kind of stuff, you're probably into role playing. So maybe there is some kind of connection that. We, we've all got too accustomed to monsters. You know, you sit in your cinema seat saying, go on, impress me with a monster. And it, it's difficult to do now because it's just a computerised thing, yeah. you know. And I think that is reflected when you get around the table. Yes. If, if anything, I, I would like us all to go back. And I think it was uh, at Daily Dwarf in his uh, articles mentioned um, an article at Gamesmanship mm. by uh, Martin Heitch uh, from issue 75. Uh, and he says in there about going back, going back and feeling that sense of that first game that you had. Mm. Yes. And that first game was the thrill of being in the room with a goblin. Yes, fighting a monster. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that thrill yeah. of Oh, uh, well, the, the thrill of it was that you felt like Jason yeah. and his Argonauts fighting the skeletons. Yeah. And, and now... For a lot of seasoned role players, fighting a few skeletons would just feel like, you know, an incidental thing in the game. Yeah. You know, where's the necromancer? We're fighting his skeletons, but where's the evil necromancer? Yeah. You know, and that and that that's the thing, isn't it? It's about wanting to get back to that kind of thing. Maybe we should start some kind of pressure group. You know, support your local monster. Yeah. You know, yeah, Monster Week. Yeah. Monster Day. National Monster Day. Yeah. National RPG Monster Day. Yeah. Where you you play role playing, you just throw monsters at people. Yeah. Have no plot, no character <laughs> background, absolutely nothing. You just have a series of rooms with horrible monsters in. That you have to yeah. fight. And that, and, and don't get me wrong, I, I 
I think as we look at these uh, at our wandering monster tables, we, you can integrate monsters into the plot. They do have an important role in the story. That's not what we're, I'm particularly saying, really. It's more to do with we've lost the sense that, mm, yeah. isn't it great? Isn't it yeah, great what, a great, what a great game. What's yeah. great about this game? Yeah, one of the things that's great, there's many things that are great about it. And yes, plot and story and character are all important. But you're right. Yeah, Mons fighting monsters is a great part of it as well. It's just as great as all the other bits. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. And I think with the new monster manual uh, for uh, fifth edition, it really lets you do that. Mm. I think it. Yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. good uh, yeah. springboard. So, yeah, I think D and D with the monsters is where it comes into its own. Okay. So let's have a look at these. Who's going first? Me or you? you? I'll let you go first. Me? All right. Okay. All right. Three. Okay. My first monster is it's a lowly creature, really. It might surprise people less. It's the it's the lowly kobold. Right. Okay. You know, um, often often much much mocked, much maligned for being an incredibly puny opponent with only I think it only gets like one d four hit points, doesn't it? It's half a hit dice. It's not even a full hit dice like a goblin or an orc. Many a high level character's career is founded on the blood of kobolds, isn't it? Oh, because yeah. when yeah. you when you're a first level when you've got a first level party, it's it's quite tricky to find monsters to fight because they're, they're puny, aren't they? I mean, yeah. first level yeah. first level characters in, in first edition D and D again less so in fifth edition, uh, but in first edition D and D, if you if you play it as it's meant to be played and you don't say, oh, well, at first level I'll give you maximum hit points, I'll give the fighter a ten hit points, you can have a maximum. If you roll D ten, if you fight, it gets say, six hit points or five hit points. Or not, your average orc or goblin against a first level fighter, it's sort of 50 50 that the fighter might die. The beauty of the kobold is they can pose a bit of a threat, but they're puny enough for first level characters. You know, they're weak enough to put against first level characters. And whilst they will give a sense of threat, because you know, they can kill you, they can win, they can do damage, and you miss them and they hit you and all that. But there's a sense in which. A first-level a first character can kind of fight kobolds and, and win. But at the same time, kobolds, sort of interesting little tribal units of kobolds, they're not, yeah. you know, a rabid dog or a wolf. I can remember once reading in White Dwarf, um, I don't know who it was, but it was some comment that said, you know, a couple of rabid dogs can pose a big threat for first-level characters. Mm. And I think that's true, but it's sort of boring, isn't it? Because yeah. you think, well... You, like you say, you want to fight monsters. Yeah, yeah. You're first, yeah. If you're a first level party, you want to fight monsters. Yeah. And kobolds are monsters. Yes. You know, they're monsters. What I like about kobolds, uh, there's a couple of things. First of all, you know, going back to what I was saying last time um, about being pragmatically minded, you know, being practically mm. minded, you know, you need kobolds around to keep the place tidy because that's the original thing, isn't it? That they were kind of. Uh, <laughs> the job thing, tidy up. Tidy up, you know, clear, clear up out of a dungeon, <laughs> just like. Sweep it, you know, the, yeah. the janitors, the of janitors the of the world, yeah, you know. and also the sword fodder, the sword, sword fodder and janitors yeah. of the fantasy world. But also, um, for some period in the eighties, I was a kobold. Um, I took on the persona of a kobold when I was running um, a postal game. <laughs> and the uh, yeah, you did. That's right. I remember now. Yeah, uh, the fanzine I mm. had at the time was called the National Kobold. 
and mm. because of his time in the mining strike, yeah, I thought that's that was, board. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think the cobalt is a is a, a good thing. So let's see what I'm going to pit it against. Okay, well, You're, whatever you pit it against is going to be tougher, isn't it? Because it's the, 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 <laughs> unless it's a rabid dog, <laughs> which let's, case, let's, uh, the cobalt might have a chance. Let, let's uh, let's roll on this then. I've got five, and I've got an imp. An imp. Okay. Okay. We're for small monsters, aren't we? We are, yeah. Start mm. off small and we'll build up. I think that's the idea, mm. isn't it? For, uh, it's, it's only two foot high. An um, imp can shred a party. Yes, I think I've seen this done. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was in that party. <laughs> you see, you know, I was saying earlier about uh, Peter Jackson. I don't want to disparage his uh, films too much, mm. but um, because, you know, there's some great ones. There. I'm not saying that, but when it comes to monsters, I believe as a, a dungeon master, you should direct your monsters like Steven Spielberg directs his monsters. Because right? I like the sense of horror and terror that a monster mm. and a monster encounters. Yes. So I always tend to um, make the um, make the players aware what they could be up against. Mm. And I think I presented it to you, wasn't it, that this... A wizard that you were going to encounter had an imp as a familiar. Yeah, so you know before you get in there that you're in potential trouble. Yes, yeah. yeah. And the thing with an imp, it has lots of abilities that can make things interesting. Mm. Yeah. So it can um, shape change, so it's got a few things it can shape change into, uh, rats being one of them. So yeah. it can arrive in a pack of rats. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah, and presumably, if there are rats in a dungeon anyway, you could argue you wouldn't even notice it's arrived, no, because there's just rats around, yeah. yeah. And um, it can turn invisible, so you can have lots of fun, um, taking things, stealing things, um, and it also has the ability of suggestion, it can whisper into players' ears mm. things that they may not want to do, <laughs> <laughs> two foot high. This imp. Yes. And I suppose the most deadly thing is is its tail. Um, so you've got a save versus death mm, with, it, yeah. with its tail. Yeah. Hit by its tail. So I think there's a lot of fun to be had having the kind of the uh, swarthy paladin and his entourage uh, <laughs> up against an imp. <laughs> One imp. <laughs> it can cause so much mayhem. Yeah. Um, but that's I, I think that's a, a thing it gives you the, the those special abilities give you the um, chance to create a bit of suspense. Mm. Is it here? Yeah. Is it this pack of rats? Is it in this pack of rats? Yeah, we know it's around. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We know it's around, and so it engenders a kind of sense of fear and yeah. paranoia almost. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is what good monsters sort of should do in a way. It's yeah. always good that sense of. In this, this, these catacombs, or in this temple, or wherever there is such a thing, um, waiting potentially to kind of, and it, it worries players and gets them on, yeah. on edge. Whereas just revealing it, just opening the door and revealing the monster, you don't get quite the same fear because at that no. point they've got to deal with it. I always think that um, a monster like that is wasted if it's revealed. Yes. Yeah. 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 I think it should torment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, beforehand or give evidence of it it's the old mm. um, you know I don't know what's on your table but it's the old uh, statues without a plinth thing isn't it it sharpens the mind it sharpens the mind yeah, yeah or there's a Medusa or a yeah. Gorgon or something in here yeah yeah yeah, yeah absolutely 
Okay, we yeah. started small. Let's see if we get any bigger. Well, I'm pleased. I'm pleased that you, you we've picked monsters. I was a little bit worried. I mean, I don't know what else is on your table. I was a little bit worried we were going to get giant things. Giant things. You know, I have strong feelings about giant things in yeah. Monster Manual. <laughs> I really do. I don't like it. Giant, giant weasel. Yeah. Giant. There's giant badgers. There's yeah. badgers. There's badgers in the Monster Manual, and yet yeah. there's a little footnote that says they can come in giant forms, and you think, well, yeah. why bother with that? You know, you if, know, if you put giant badger on your list, I suggest you cross it off now. Yeah, you, you'll, just, you'll, get, you'll get short shrift from me. I just get me, just get me <laughs> dead. It's called Dungeons and Dragons, isn't it? Not Dungeons and Giant Badgers. Giant it's, Shrew. Giant yeah, Shrew. Coming off. Giant Shrew. Giant Weasel. Giant this. Giant that. I mean, you are a giant spider. I'll give you that. But just putting giant in front of ordinary animals. There's oh. a lot of that in Monster Man. Yeah, it does, well, it does the, irritate the, the, me. There is some of that, and I think in some of the further uh, versions, it gets a bit worse, doesn't it? Mm. But I think I mean, Monster we'll, Manual 2 has even more stupid yeah. thing. Giant I, antelope. Well, yeah. When when will you need one of those? <laughs> <laughs> what point? You can always tell in a beastery when uh, they're running out of ideas, when things just start getting big. Things just get big, yeah. yeah or giant, like, or giant like geometrical shapes. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's some of those in Monster Manual 2, isn't there? <laughs> Anyway, we won't okay. go there. We won't we'll go again. there. So no, we'll no giant things. So, so I'm not playing. Two small things. Let's okay. see what you've got. It's an eight. An eight. An eight. Right, okay. Right, well, my next choice is... Um, it's like the conventional, I think, but I have, I have my reasons. It's uh, the vampire. The vampire. The vampire. Can I do my evil laugh again? Well, have you done one more? Have you done already? <laughs> You know, that was your evil laugh. Well, that's your evil laugh. Oh, no, that was it before. Not that, the one before. Your normal laugh. That's my evil that's your chuckle. Evil. Yeah. Um, the reason I picked the vampire is, there's a couple of reasons. One one ties back into what we were talking about earlier, in that one of the problems with Monster Manual is that a lot of the monsters are just things to defeat. Hmm. But the vampire, for whatever reason, often has the kind of capacity to be an NPC villain, if you like, or an arch nemesis, that kind of thing. And I know in the past we've used them in that way. Um, and certainly, you know, a Curse of Strad and Ravenloft and all those kind of scenarios tie into that idea that uh, I think of all the monsters um, in Monster Manual, Vampire is the one that you think as a games master, ah, you know, this isn't just this isn't just a monster that you'll find in a room somewhere and have to defeat. It's a monster that is like... A person. It's, um, a monster, it's a monster with personality. It's got personality. You know, whether that comes from Monster Manual or whether it just comes from culture generally, yeah. I don't know. Um, but it's got that kind of personality that you can use it as a as a major villain in a scenario. Uh, and a lot of the monsters in Monster Manual don't really have that capacity, I don't think. So that's one reason. I think the other reason is, again, it goes back to what we were saying earlier, a bit, a bit like movies from childhood. Um, and books from childhood and all that kind of stuff you know watching hammer horror films on a saturday night when you're sort of 12 years old the vampire in monster manual is is a very good translation of the creature from films and books into game terms what i mean by that is there's lots of monsters in monster manual that are from mythology uh, but when you read them, they're often twisted a little bit. They're often, they're often skewed a little bit to fit the game. But when you read the vampire description, it, it, it is, you know, Christopher Lee, isn't it? In, yeah. in the vampire, in those Hammer Horror films, it is that. And, and again, there's that magic. 
See, I think I think the vampire has, has suffered over the last uh, twenty years or so from uh, its proliferation. Well, that that's true, and I, I think yeah, that's true. It, it is in it's everywhere. The vampire is everywhere. But what I'm trying to say is, you've got to contextualize it a bit. Monster Manual. When Monster yeah. Manual was published, there was no Knights Black Agents. There was no Call of Cthulhu. There was none of these other games. Masquerade. Yeah, there's none of that. Um, and what they did, they took that. They say that thing that scared you on the telly <laughs> as a kid yeah. and made it playable in a game. It is a Bella Lugosi, uh, um, uh, Christopher Lee mm. vampire that it creates. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think as well that thing that it has, um, and I know that we have different opinions on this. I think it's one of those monsters that sharpens the minds of the players. Yes. Because yeah. it, the level draining ability. Oh yeah, yeah. Is that you know you, yeah. you, you might have a hundred and ten hit points. Mm. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. No, because it's going to drain levels. You're going to drain yeah. levels. I mean, I, I always have mixed feelings about a level drain monsters that can do level. I don't mind the draining of levels on player characters. I think that's a good. Like you say, it's a good thing because it's a scary thing. Um, but I think when we've played it, we've always said, you know, a week's rest and you start getting the levels back. Because I think to actually drain two, three, four levels out of someone's a bit mean, given that it takes you that long to get up the levels. See, I don't have any You don't problem. have a problem with that, do you? But <laughs> I, I think, I think when, I've, when I've had vampires in my games, I've always said, yeah, drains your levels, but a day's full rest, you get a level back, you know. Yeah. It, it seems less. So it still makes the monster deadly, because in that moment in time, it can drain your levels and kill you pretty quickly. Um, but it's not as long-term, the effects of it. The vampires in 5th edition are a bit more prosaic to reflect how vampires mm. have changed in yeah. literature and yeah. uh, cinema yeah. over the intervening years. Yeah. But I think you're right. I think there's something about that vampire that, as it appears in Monster yeah. Manual uh, and in I think, the first edition, I, I that think is as well really good. good about them, because there are other undead creatures like liches and you know whites and that kind of thing. But good thing about the vampire is because it ta- it draws from mythology and films. You've got all those ways of it is very dangerous. You have all those unusual ways of killing it, so it disintegrates in sunlight. Can't yeah. pass running water, so it gives the players a kind of space where they can think. Look, exactly. this 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 monster is really dangerous, but he has these weaknesses. He has these strange weaknesses. So if we're on the other side of a river. You know, he can't cross it. That kind of stuff, that's all in there. Which makes him sort of the king of the undead as a monster because he's more interesting than a, a white or a lich and all that kind of stuff, I think. Yeah. Right, let's see who I'm going to pit against. Almost the king of monsters. The king of monsters, yeah. Ha! I raise you, the dragon. Oh, typical. <laughs> You're always lucky at the wandering monsters. <laughs> the dragon. It has to appear, doesn't it? It has to appear. Yeah. It has to appear. Yeah. I think. Uh, yeah. It is Dungeons and Dragons, after all. Not Dungeons and Giant Badgers. Yeah. No. And I come back to that. I come back to that thing of um, how dra- dragons have been particularly badly treated by CGI mm. and over familiarity. I mean, you only have to look at the Game of Thrones dragons, and you know they don't do them well, do they? No. I think an encounter with a dragon needs to be significant mm. and interesting. And I think the uh, selection dragons that they give you in Dungeon Dragons do give you that ability as a, yeah. a, a, a dungeon master to create that. And also I think there's that thing of knowing what you're going to encounter, going back to the imp, but more so with the mm. dragon, knowing what you're going to encounter allows you to kind of equip yourself 
to take on like 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 a vampire, you know, start sharpening the stakes and yeah. Uh, <laughs> so the uh, 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 dragons having strategies, the players develop thinking about developing strategies mm. for the encounter and how to subdue because uh, you have they have those rules on how to subdue. Yeah, some of the rules around them are interesting, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, so I do and I do think that I think there's nothing better as a player um, when you w- get into that room. And you're in the room with the dragon. Mm. To me, that that is the most thrilling encounter you can have yeah. in role-playing games. Uh, yeah, that's true. And yeah, and as you say, they're, they're interesting monsters from a from a sort of game perspective as well, because you can have like young um, dragons, yeah. can't you, and older dragons. And again, goes back to what I was saying about the kobold in a way, in a roundabout way, in that when you've got low-level characters or lowish level, I mean obviously you wouldn't put first level characters against a dragon but when you've got lowish level characters you can still use dragons to make it interesting because if you pick a young dragon that's not as powerful as an older dragon you can still incorporate them into your game and that's a good thing because sometimes some of the really spectacular you know, the demons and devils and all that kind of stuff that are incredibly powerful and spectacular you you just can't use them unless your players are very, very high level but Yeah. yeah, the dragon you can use it um, relatively early on in a game by just making it a younger dragon, you know, a weaker dragon. It's got that kind of sliding scale in there, hasn't it, for it as a monster? And you can Spiel- Spielbergify it by tormenting the players with the dragon because mm. it's got those abilities yeah, to do yeah. that. Yeah, to do that. And it's got like intelligence, hasn't it? And yeah. that, that's, I mean, that's an interesting thing, isn't it, about Dungeons and Dragons? That Again, if you go back to you know 1979, whenever it's published, um, in a lot of people's imagination, a dragon is just a big, scary monster that's going to eat you. You know, Saint yeah. George and the Dragon type thing. Yeah. But Dungeons and Dragons creates these dragons with they've got spells, they can speak, they've got intelligence, yeah. they've got you know, and they, they they are like fascinatingly versatile monsters, aren't they? You yeah. know. So the vampire versus the dragon. I have to give you the dragon. I have to concede, won't I? Because you can't, you can't say again. It's not Dungeons and Vampires, it's Dungeons and Dragons. Although there are, there are plenty of vampire games, aren't there? There, there are, yeah. Okay, okay. Over to you to roll for your last one. Okay, last one. Two. Right. Well, it's another. It's another tiny monster. Another one that seems, on the face of it, a little bit like your imp, innocuous. It's the Sturge. Ah, the the blood sucking. I've picked two blood suckers, haven't I? The yeah, vampire. Yeah. Now the sturge. <laughs> the sturge is a particular favourite of mine because, and again, I've seen this done. Um, it has that ability to really kind of rattle players, even when they think they're kind of powerful, by the fact that it attacks. Although it's kind of puny and little, it attacks. I think as a four hit dice monster, so it's a lot. It's a lot tougher in terms of its attack than its actual hit points. And once it attach, attaches to you, it starts to drain hit points. And you've got to kill it to get it off. Now, if you have a swarm of sturges, what is a swarm? A flock? flock I don't, I don't know. know. A flock? A murder. A murder of sturges would have to be, wouldn't it? Um, that can cause real problems. Uh, you know, And I've seen that done with a party. Again, a kind of cocky party that thinks they're, you know, we're fourth, fifth level. We're a bit tough now. And these little sturges appear and people think, that's not a problem, is it? You know, whack one of these and it's dead with one hit. But then, of course, a few more appear, a few get attached. Two of them get attached to a player character. He can only kill one in a round. Yeah. And by the time he's killed one, 
another one can be attached. And all the time they're draining hit points. So it's that thing of, as I was saying earlier, I found it difficult to get a good all-round monster that has a special attack that's kind of universally good, universally effective. But I do think the Sturge is kind of getting there. You know, it's an interesting monster. It has a special attack, um, and it, it's kind of all-purpose. You can yeah. use it against anyone, any time, and it's guaranteed to put the wind up them. Yeah, as a dungeon master, I think the Sturge is a dungeon master's friend because... <laughs> You can put them in a room where there's another encounter mm. taking place, another thing to deal with, and yes. the Sturges yeah. can be just a nuisance. Yeah, the Sturges just live in the ceiling, in the in the rafters of the wherever it is. Yeah. yeah. So whilst you're kind of turning do- zombies or trying to deal with something else, these pesky Sturges mm. are kind of yeah. draining away at you, yeah. having to deal yeah, with absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, that's a good choice. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's see what else is on my table. Okay, one. Now, uh, in the ecology of the dungeon, mm-hmm. there are certain creatures, aren't there, that exist only because of Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> yes, they do. Yes. <laughs> and um, just, I'm not going to reveal this because this isn't a creature that you reveal easy, is it? Um, on my table. Don't build. I don't know. You're not real, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, in the ecology of uh, the dungeons, so these these creatures that exist only because of Dungeons and Dragons, they wouldn't exist because of anything else. Mm. So previously, we've mentioned the ones that are based on plastic figures that Gary Gygax bought from yes. the pound shop, yeah. stroke dime store, dime store, yes, <laughs> <laughs> from, from Taiwan. But there are also those creatures that exist just to, um, as I said, torment players. Mm. You know, the mimic. That looks like a, mm. a chest. Yeah. I have a dim view of those sometimes, but there we go. See, I like them. I like well, them. Well, I, I, yeah, I think there's, there's a fine line, though, isn't there, sometimes, uh, I suppose, between the, the, the daft monster, you know. But the, I mi- the mimic, I mean, it only exists so it can look like a treasure chest and then attack someone. You think, oh, come on. <laughs> but, but I see. This is where this is where I've been able to reconcile Dungeons and Dragons. So, in a bit like the character classes, in films and in books, you don't have a group of uh, no, people no, no. going around with a cleric, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. well balanced party, well balanced party. <laughs> yeah. In the same way, you know, if you accept that in this game, you mm. will encounter yes. yeah, 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 stuff. Yeah. It's a game, isn't it? It's a yes. game. So, that's true. And we have had we have had fun in in sort of dungeons with monsters that are like that and are just. Essentially silly but challenging. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to reveal Go it. Now. Reveal it. Not really yet. The lurker above. Thank God for that. Thought you were going to say gelatinous cube. <laughs> we don't have a fight on your hands then. Stupid monster. <laughs> the lurker above. Now, I only like the lurker above because of one reason. <laughs> I know uh, that reason. Yeah. Um, you know, we, the theme of this uh, these uh, series of podcasts have been about the power player, haven't they? And I think monsters are part of the armour in the war of attrition between mm. the yeah. uh, dungeon master and the power player. Yeah. And as you say, you yeah, know, yeah, certain yeah. things suit in certain situations. Yes, they do. Yeah. 
And, uh, you know, we had a problem with a power player. And if that power player, Kevin, uh, was here... <laughs> he would remain, un- min- remain nameless, yeah, Kevin. Kevin, Kevin yeah. <laughs> if he was here, he'd be riding in on a high horse right now, wouldn't he? He would, yes. Yeah, a, yeah. White, a white charger of a high horse, wouldn't yeah, he? Forgotten in horse. Pal- in his yeah. paladin armour. Yeah. <laughs> because, I, you know, I... I, I, I need to get it. It puts me in a bad light, this. Don't don't, well, yeah, you started saying that with those psychopathic games masters. Yeah, but I'm not he like is, that. He is time. a psychopath. <laughs> but the look above, of course, is um, a camouflaged giant stingray type creature that can drop from the ceiling of a dungeon and envelop a player uh, and just constrict them until mm. dead. Yeah. Um, a great creature. A great creature. <laughs> When you're faced with a power player who just barges into rooms. Yeah, the kind of power player who, who barges into rooms feeling invulnerable, feeling that no matter what gets thrown at me, I've got enough hit points to soak it up and worry about it the next round of combat, yeah. which is the situation we sometimes find ourselves in. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and look above it, essentially, it's like a living trap, isn't it? It's like a, it's just put there to kind of. Uh, yeah, yeah, it yeah, drops it on you. Drop, I, drops I don't on. think you can attack with your weapons either. No, can no. You? So oh, you, no, no. You're no, kind no. of constrained. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's great. It's great yeah. for those. <laughs> <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> See, I am putting myself in a bad light because uh, it, it, it is a great creature. And to be fair, I did give clues, didn't I? You did give clues because the rest of us, uh, I think there were holes in the ceiling, yeah, weren't there? The, the rest of us decided to not go in. But that <laughs> irritated him. And he said, oh, you cowards, and walked in. Yeah. And, um, it dropped on him. Almost died. Yeah, he almost died, yeah. <laughs> so a very powerful uh, paladin. And the lurker above yeah. enveloped him. And the great thing about it as well is you can't really hit a lurker above without doing damage to the person who's being enveloped. You know, so you that's get, true. Yeah, if you shove a sword through it, you're gonna, yeah, arguably yeah. shove it at least in part through them as well. Yeah. yeah. So endless debate mm-hmm. uh, ensued. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on that. Yeah. And, but I think I think the good thing about it as well is that it can cause surprise, and then you've got a certain length of time because all the great creatures, if you've been Spielberg about it, have suspense, horror. Yes. and anticipation yeah. and create a sense of jeopardy because yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's why I think sometimes lost in the kind of fodder mm. approach yeah. of hit dice well that's it because the lurker above it it's generally speaking it's a, not it's not too slow a death but it is a relative yeah. it's a slow enough death to, to make you think oh I'm going to die here unless I do something and I can't do very much yeah. uh, someone else is going to have to help me yes you know? um, so yeah yeah it's got that suspense of Whilst it's not got the suspense that you know it's there, because the whole point is you don't know it's there, but it has got the suspense that once it attacks, you are in trouble. I suppose it's very similar to the Sturge in a way, isn't it? Yeah. It has that same feeling of, you know, no one would worry, particularly if a dungeon had some Sturges in, but once they attach themselves to you and they start draining your blood, then you're going to start worrying it. So it's a, a different kind of suspense to the Imp and the Vampire or the Medusa, or whatever, because that's that's suspense based on when's it going to attack. Yeah. It's more suspense, it has attacked me, but the way it's killing me is slow, and I'm struggling to do anything about it, and I'm yeah. losing hit points hand over fist. That, so bo- both those monsters do that kind of thing, don't they, yeah. in, in their own way. And, you know, I think it was a, it was a reasonable uh, thing to do. I mean, it, you know, uh, Kevin on his high horse up there... <laughs> Uh, disagrees. <laughs> um, well, I think it is reasonable because the the problem with the power gamer is that 
you've got to sort of show them who's boss as a games master, haven't you? Otherwise, they start running the game a little bit. Yeah, I think you know? I think the words are politely but firmly. Politely but firmly tell yeah. them this is who the boss is. I probably overstepped the mark though when I was kissing the dice before I rolled. Them. You did kiss the dice. It won't that that wasn't that wasn't particularly that's very nice, was it? Psychopath. And on that note, <laughs> and on that bombshell, let's uh, pack up the monster manual. I think we need to come back to monsters um, uh, for other game systems because we haven't really talked about them, have we? No, we've not. It, it seems logical to talk about it for D and D because there are so many monsters. I mean, and it, it just probably has more monsters than any game. Monster yeah. manual, theme folio, monster yeah. manual two. You know, so it's, it's it's more monsters than anything, really. I think we need to come back to monsters, certainly. And I, I want to say to our listeners out there, I want you to rediscover and fall yeah. in love with the magic of a really good monster. But um, not giant badges. Yeah, no giant no, badges. No giant badges. You'll, you'll not fall in love with those. No. And uh, try not to kiss the dice. <laughs> <laughs> there isn't another section. I didn't have the heart to point out that the greatest monster in cinema history is, of course, a giant monkey. I'd be interested in your views and tips for directing monsters. I feel they should never be set dressing. If Call of Cthulhu's Tortoise game is anything, is that there's an excitement and thrill anticipating monsters if they handle correctly and treated with care and reverence they deserve. Let me know your thoughts on Twitter at the Grognard File, my favourite social media channel, where you'll also find at Daily Dwarf. At Daily Dwarf and Blythe are having a well-earned break next time. The fourth and final part of this epic Dungeons and Dragons episode is going to be like the footnotes, the Silmarillion, or the Unearthed Arcana. Chris Watkins from Bonamy Games complained that I didn't include the potted history of D&D to provide some context. Unfortunately, it ended up on the cutting room floor to try and reduce the size of the Dungeon Master's Guide in Part 1. I'm going to stick it in the next part, along with an interview I did with Rick and Tim from the Old Scrooge Club in Southport. They've had some great experience of playing that they've shared with me, it includes RuneQuest and D&D. Tim talks about how the different editions of D&D evolved. Also in the next part, there'll be an extended postbag. On the website, there's been some interesting comments at the grognardfiles.com. On the site, you'll find the details of our other projects, including a fanzine, a meet-up in Manchester, an online game and other uh, things that we're doing. All of these projects have been made possible with the support and encouragement of our patrons. If you like what we do, then please support us by throwing some coins in the beret at Patreon site. Um, at this point of the podcast, I'd like to say thank you for those patrons that have joined us this time round. First off, Frank Turfler, Jason Beaumont and Adam Buxton, not that one, and Bill Foreman are now honorary members of the Armchair Adventurers Club and they'll get a PDF copy of the fanzine when it comes out. Coming in at the $3.5 a month level is Richard August and James Rogers. 
Thanks, guys. They'll get a hard copy of the fanzine when it comes out. Well, thanks to you all. We also have some new $5 a month backers, and I always try to give them um, a virtual gift at random from a table from the game under the discussion. And uh, this time I'm going back to the second edition Dungeon Master's Guide and rolling on a magical items table. Uh, this time it's table 19, Rods. OK, first up it's uh, Joe and Chris Watkins, long-term supporters of the Grognard Files. And they're the proprietors of BonamyGames.uk, the home of convivial gaming. Check out their store online and let's have a see. They get... They get a 19, and that's a, a rod of terror. Uh, I suppose that's like the equivalent of rod hull and emu. Okay, thanks, guys. Okay, next is uh, Richard Scott of otherworldminiatures.co.uk, and he's written some great comments about the podcast on the site. Thanks, Richard. You need to check out his site, um, if only to see the impressive Demon Idol based on the first edition play handbook illustration. It's fantastic. Okay, here goes. That's a natural 20, which means I get to pick one. So I'm going to give you a rod of singing. It's a sort of a magical Rod Stewart. And Rod Stewart looks like he's been hit in the face with a rod, doesn't he? Last and definitely not least is Jeff Bernstein. He's upgraded his uh, pledge this month. Uh, so thank you very much. And you get a 12. That's the rod of rulership. So it's one rod to rule them all. Thanks a lot. Okay, please do keep in touch. And uh, next time will be the episode's footnotes. Uh, but don't tell Peter Jackson, for goodness sake, he'll want to create an epic out of it. And we're quite capable of doing that ourselves. So, until next time, I'm dirtthedice at gmail.com. Adios, amigos.